0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's only a
1: kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. show podcast
0: so much to talk about so much has happened 2020 a year like none of us has experienced just internationally when we look in our own backyard whether it's on in our neighborhoods our cities our province or or our country what a what a, what a what a confusing compounded confusing year we're joined by the premier of saskatchewan scott moe The premier is going to talk to us about the issues of 2020 and looking ahead to to the new year. We have so much going on from COVID, of course, to the interprovincial relations and trade, to the Supreme Court challenge of the Trudeau carbon tax. That goes on. And Premier Mo, until recently, was the chairman of the Council of the Federation, and that is the uh, premier's group for Canada. Premier Mo, first of all, thank you for all the time that you give us and I really appreciate you coming on the show today to take a look back at 2020 and ahead to 2021.
2: Well, thanks so much, Roy, and thank you for what you do for, you know, precipitating a very important discussion from coast to coast in this nation on your radio show.
0: Thank you. Uh, let's start with COVID. What? Where are we right now, Premier? Where are we? And what are we anticipating going forward? I'll ask you to gaze into the crystal ball and and maybe explain to, to our listeners. And some people are dubious about the information they're receiving, particularly when they're told you can't gather in your home. But at the same time, there are hundreds of people in box stores. It becomes uh, The message becomes challenging to, to accept. Where are we? Where are we headed?
2: Well, I think we're at a a, a good place uh, here in Canada, and I think at a place uh, given this season, this this season of Christmas, that we can we can all be thankful that we are uh, living in this nation with the people that live next door to us, right at, right across the nation. Um, despite uh, some recent surges in numbers in in various areas in Canada, we're in a very good we're in a very good place when you compare us to to other areas of of the world. So I think Canadians can be proud of of the fact that A, they're Canadians, the fact that B, um, the reason we're in this this reasonably strong uh, position is due to what we have collectively done across, across the nation in curbing the spread of, of COVID-19. That being said, um, I, I think we're also in a very challenging position for the next number of weeks. Uh, we have our vaccines that are on the way, in fact, on the ground. In many cases, we're administering vaccines uh, in, in Saskatchewan as we speak and are going to be ramping that up uh, over the course of the next number of, of weeks. Um and looking forward to making those vaccines available to Canadians. Um but the challenge is is we need to continue with the uh the you know the measures that are in place for some period of time. And this is where um you know I, I think we all personally find it challenging. Yes, the vaccines are available. We're getting that into those vaccines into the arms of our healthcare workers and those that are most vulnerable as quickly as we can. But until um, we we can get through at least uh, those most vulnerable in our healthcare care workers, uh, we're going to have to continue with the measures that are in place. And so I, I see that for, you know, the next number of weeks, possibly, you know, a month, maybe just slightly longer. And then hopefully being able to look at, you know, the, the next steps at reopening our communities and, and really, looking towards what opportunities we might have as we find ourselves on the backside of this, so we're in a good spot, um, I think, uh, across Canada, but also in a, a very challenging position for the next number of weeks.
0: Premier Mo, how much cooperation and communication is there among premiers in Canada, and how often does the prime minister add something of, of value to those discussions, assuming they take place? <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll keep this. Uh, I'll keep this to a COVID. Uh, a COVID based conversation just um, here right now. The, uh, the, we've, uh, as premiers, we've been talking virtually weekly uh, since the COVID, the COVID, uh, the COVID uh, virus has landed here in Canada. Um, there's been a few weeks where we haven't had our, our Council of Federation call, but I would say the majority of the weeks uh, that we most certainly have, as well as a number of conversations going on. Um, I myself talk to not all of the premiers on a, on a weekly or even a monthly basis. Well, on a weekly basis, uh, no, but on a monthly basis, we most certainly have touched base uh, through our calls. But I talk to many of them, uh, you know, often. The prime minister uh, will come in on the first minister's calls when uh, whenever those are scheduled. I, I would say, uh, listen, despite um, some, and I'll speak from Saskatchewan's perspective, some very challenging conversations that we've had with this federal government around their. Uh, times an all-out what feels like an all-out assault on on how we create wealth in in Saskatchewan and in, in mining and in energy production and in uh, some of the the very strong industries that we have in Saskatchewan that employ not only people from here but but people across the nation. Um, the conversation that we've had with the federal government uh, when it comes to COVID has been uh, fairly collaborative. Um, the the federal government has stepped up uh, where uh, they need to. Uh, they've procured vaccines, uh, a lot of vaccines actually for Canadians and. What we've been working with the federal government on and pressuring them at times is let's try to get access to those vaccines sooner rather than later that is actually the key now we have enough vaccines procured in canada more than enough but we, what we need to do is get our hands on them sooner rather than later so we can find our way through this get back to the uh, you know the, the strong economic uh, growth that we are used to in this nation
0: speaking of the economy what is the greatest concern that you and perhaps your fellow premiers would have about getting the economy back on a strong footing is concerned we're looking at a deficit of close to 400 billion dollars for 2020 we have a national debt of uh, of a tr- of a trillion and more we have provincial debt we have Also, we knew in uh, in October of last year that 49% of Canadians were within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of each month. So how do we get our economy? Do we have a plan to get our economy back on its feet?
2: Well, we most certainly do here in Saskatchewan, and I think in fairness, collectively, the provinces do across the nation. You're right. you know, we have households that are coming out of this COVID situation in very challenged um, personal fiscal, uh, very challenging personal fiscal position. We have provinces that have taken on debt throughout the last uh, the last year, and we have a federal government that has taken on a large amount of debt uh, over the course of the last uh, year. Some of it necessary, some of it uh, likely ne- less less uh, less effective. Um, but you know, as we move forward, the the world is the the, glo- the world is going to recover. Uh, the, there is the global economy is going to start to rev its engine again here, and uh, there is going to be some opportunities for those uh, first movers into these markets, and that's uh, why uh, Saskatchewan right now, as we speak, is busy engaging with our our markets around the world. We've set up our three trade offices, uh, um, additional trade offices in addition to the ones that we had. Um, and we are uh, busy engaging on behalf of our our industries in Saskatchewan to ensure that they' are at the front of the line to regain. Uh, any market share they had pre-COVID, but also at the front of the line uh, to to offer to fill any additional market share that may become available. Uh, I I would I'm very bullish on on Saskatchewan's fortunes in the next six to eighteen months for sure, um, and I'm also equally as bullish on on Canada's fortunes uh, over the course of the next period of time. Uh, what we need to do uh, as a nation, as as provincial leaders, and as national leaders. Is to stay out of, uh, in many cases, uh, keep our nose clean uh, with respect to our relationships with our trading partners. Um, I understand there's a, a multitude of conversations, in particular at the federal level, that we um, all want to have with uh, you know the nations and national leaders around the world. And this this may be a time for us to very much focus in on on our trade relations with those partners around the world. Stay focused on on ensuring that we have access to these markets so that. Uh, the, the the industries that create wealth, whether it be in Hamilton, Ontario, whether it be in in uh, Montreal, Quebec, whether it be in Atlantic Canada on the on the west coast or in the Prairie provinces or even in our north, that we have access to those markets so that we can uh, bring back all of those jobs that we had about ten twelve months ago, and then actually even maybe bring back a few more. Uh, we need the market access, and uh, we'll be looking to our federal government to um, you know extend the. Uh, Uh, you know, words of of wisdom and outreach, if you will, to ensure that we can have that market access around the world.
0: Premier, if I can, just before I ask you about interprovincial trade, because I think that's an area that really needs improvement in this country and can certainly help us economically, what's the takeaway that you have from 2020, particularly for the western provinces and for Saskatchewan? Uh, I know that you want to become more engaged with small nuclear plants, Um, and there's the issue of the carbon tax that continues with the prime minister announcing suddenly um, a few days ago that it was going up uh, significantly over the next 10 years which will not do much for as you've treated for the agricultural community in your in your province what's the takeaway for western canada your province from 2020
2: well from 2020 2020 has been a challenging year for i think all the canadians just predominantly because of the way um, uh, the response that we have had to uh, collectively um, uh, uh, put together um, for to to battle the COVID-19 virus and to keep it at at bay in our communities, in our families, and and in those uh, that may be very susceptible to it in in the Prairie provinces, there's been some I would say additional challenges. As yes, you spoke to you know increasing the carbon tax some 200 plus percent uh, that's going to be uh, prior to having uh, the supreme court to rule on whether or not the federal government even has the constitutionality to to enact that those are challenges for our industries that are creating wealth uh, here in in uh, in uh, in the Prairie provinces, you know, I'm just reading uh, a book called Triple Crown by the late Jim Prentice. Uh, he uh, speaks very eloquently in that book about how Canadians uh, generate wealth, how we approach uh, our environmental responsibilities, and and. And quite frankly, how we have to do it in a realistic way, not in an unrealistic way of setting targets that are unachievable, which I think we admittedly did in Kyoto and in the Kyoto Accord and a little more moderate in Copenhagen, but maybe um, a little more challenging in, in the Paris Accord as well if we're not going to go down the roads of, uh, you know, Article 6 and some of the other opportunities that we have. So, uh, you know, uh, in, in Saskatchewan's perspective, I think uh, we're happy to have 2020 behind us for sure. Uh, looking forward to the opportunities in 2021, and we have uh, great opportunities in, in, uh, in, in expanding our our exports uh, around the world. Um, you know, I always say we have some of the most competitively priced, sustainable uh, mine products: uranium, uh, potash, uh, the agri-food sector that we have, the energy sector that we continue uh, to operate here in the province. Uh, we have a, a um, you know, most certainly. Uh, our best days uh, continue to be in front of us. Um, We have a little bit of a a step back in 2020, but we're, uh, we're, we're looking forward to 2021 in a big way.
0: So Premier, if we're looking for economic growth and economic recovery after 2020 and COVID, when we finally have the thing mostly under control, One of the opportunities that exists for this country is to improve the interprovincial trade reality and not make it difficult for provinces, and sometimes impossible, for provinces to work with one another, more difficult than it is to work with an international entity. What's your comment on that, and would you say that the majority of premiers would be on side with, with changing this reality and making it into a more positive
2: reality? Yeah, I, I agree. And this is an area where premiers have to continue uh, to do some work. And, you know, I'll speak to some of the early conversations I had uh, when I was first elected premier, at my first Council of Federation meeting uh, back in uh, New Brunswick at the time with uh, Brian Gallant was uh, the premier at that point in time. Doug Ford was uh, newly elected. And I can remember looking around the table and, and saying, you know, we need to work on, 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 um, on interprovincial trade. We had a, a task force that had been put together by uh, the Twin Towers, uh, Stephen McNeil and, and Brian Pallister, and they had uh, done some real good work on, on where we needed to work. Um, everybody agrees with it around the table. Um, and then when they go around the table the second time, there's a number of exemptions that each province is, is quite often looking for to protect uh, certain areas of, of trade that they have. This is true when you go to international trade agreements. This is true when you go to international climate change agreements it's easy to agree on the on the the theory of the agreement but it's a little bit harder once you get into the nuts and bolts so what we have uh, what we have done is taken a bilateral approach to this um, we we for example in Saskatchewan worked very closely with Alberta and uh, reduced a number of energy regulations over the course of the last year to ensure that our energy uh, companies are able to operate uh, seamlessly as they operate across the border which they weren't uh, ironically uh, before. Uh we've done a number of mining uh regulatory harmonization uh efforts with uh with the the province of, of Manitoba. Uh some transportation uh, we found that Saskatchewan was out of step on some single wide based hire uh regulations that was clean across from Ontario, New Brunswick, through Manitoba, uh, into Alberta, and British Columbia, but Saskatchewan was the outlier. And so we cleaned up and harmonized those regulations. So re- really what it's about is it's harmonizing our, our regulatory atmosphere. Um, it can go a long ways to Canadian businesses that are doing business in different jurisdictions across this nation uh, can do so with one set of regulations as opposed to a different set in Saskatchewan versus Ontario versus Quebec versus British Columbia. So Premiers have some more work to do here. Um, it's essentially reducing the red tape that Canadian businesses are operating under and we're committed to doing it I know other premiers are committed to doing it as well and we uh, most certainly, um, this is an area where premiers have to continue to do the work that they've been doing.
0: Premier Mo, we have about 30 seconds left. What are your thoughts about small business in this country struggling
2: mightily? Some, small businesses had, uh, one of the toughest years uh, likely uh, that small businesses ever had in this nation. I know provinces, the federal government to their credit have reached out to uh, support um, small business and ultimately the people that they employ, which uh, is well in excess of 80% of the people that are employed uh, in this province uh, that I live in. Um, and so we have uh, um, most certainly when I talk about the, the, the opportunities that we have for our Saskatchewan economy um, in the next six to 18 months. Those are opportunities that I equate to as jobs, and the bulk of those jobs are going to be in small business. So a lot of conversation going to happen with small business in the next few months. But I think, in fairness, as we if we do the right things as Canadians, as Canadian leaders, provincial leaders, and the federal government, small business has some bright days ahead of it, but we need to ensure that we are making every effort to get them to where they need to be.
0: Premier, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for joining us so many times during the year. It's always really uh, important for us to hear from you and wish you all the very best for 2021.
2: Roy, thank you as well. I would like to wish all your viewers a belated uh, Merry Christmas and all the best in 2021. Um, I think we're all looking forward to it and we can not get there soon enough.
0: Three infectious diseases specialists wrote a National Post op-ed that was headlined, As vaccines roll out, politicians must establish a clear path to easing lockdowns. The parameters for lifting restrictions will have to be redefined as vulnerable populations are protected. One of the three doctors joins us to explain and speak to vaccine developments as well as vaccine efficacy as COVID-19 mutates. We've spoken with Dr. Neil Rao in the past. He was with us. Last weekend, and because of timing issues that I didn't want to bore you with, we only had a few minutes with Dr. Rao. He's back with us, an infectious diseases specialist, microbiologist at Halton Health in Ontario, also at Humber River Hospital, and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Rao, thank you very much for taking time. And you write in the op-ed that it's miraculous three vaccines are ready to take on COVID-19 and will have made it from the lab into patients' arms in months, a milestone for vaccine technology. Could you speak to that first?
1: Well, first of all, we've never had a vaccine against a coronavirus before. It was a bit of an ignored disease because all of the other coronaviruses, except for the SARS one and MERS one, have been somewhat limited in their duration of being around and didn't spread like this one does. So it's a miracle that we came up with a virus a coverage for or a vaccine coverage against a virus that didn't exist before. The other thing is the technology that's being used, the messenger RNA vaccine technology that is part of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine is actually new technology. And so that's another sort of miraculous element. Maybe that's accelerated the ability to develop a vaccine. I think many have thought we wouldn't have a vaccine so soon. And uh, you may recall Donald Trump you know, uh, hectoring that you know, the vaccine would be available so soon, and Fauci was saying not so soon. So the average has turned out to be the case, that here we are at the end of the year having vaccines going into people's arms. And then there's a third non-messenger RNA form of the vaccine, that uh, astrazeneca makes that's uh, going into people's arms and another interesting point is that canada is a bit of a leader in terms of the timing of getting vaccines into people's arms i think in europe they're still a little behind us it's rolling out in britain and so on but it's not as quick in the eu
0: so how do we measure the efficacy of vaccines we we've never done this before as you've said there's never been a vaccine for a coronavirus This thing is mutating, and I'd like to ask you about that as well, because when I use the word mutating, I start to think of bad movies, and this is not (laughs) something to be funny about, but but that's the the instant visual that pops in between my left and right eye. Um, So could we first of all ask you how do you measure the efficacy of a vaccine or the two vaccines or three vaccines as they roll out, and then how does that potentially affect or how does the mutation of the virus affect the efficacy of the vaccine?
1: So first thing is vaccine efficacy is always measured using the lowest hanging fruit. You get the healthy volunteers who are under 55 years of age, and you look at the group who get the vaccine versus the group who don't and see how much less disease occurs in those who got the vaccine. And if people who got the vaccine get much less disease, in this case it's reduced by 95%, so if uh, 1 out of 20 gets it in the vaccine group and 19 out of 20 get it in the um, – or 20 out of 20 get it in the uh, uh, non-vaccine group, you would call it a 95% of vaccine efficacy. What we don't know is how does that play out in people who are elderly, those with the underlying conditions. And now the other question that comes up is with the virus having, quote, mutated, having had a drift of its genetic code, will it still work in the same way? The reason for caution with the virus drift – is that it is the actual uh, S-protein, which has had a deletion or dropout in this UK variant strain that you're hearing about, and the target of the vaccine is, in fact, that spike protein, the S-protein. So the worry is that if the spike protein is modified in the virus, will it make it harder for people to mount an immune response against that virus if it shows up? Don't know yet. The best answer is going to be watching what happens in the UK as they give the vaccine to people, as they watch for a few weeks, and if they start seeing higher rates of disease featuring the U.K. variant in those who have received the vaccine uh, versus those who get uh, better vaccine efficacy and it, when, they, when they haven't had, had the exposure to the U.K. variant, they could actually come up with a proper estimation of whether this compromises vaccine efficacy. But I do want to say one thing. Even if it drops to 50% in people who are the highest risk, this is still a win because you're protecting those people from getting sickened and flooding the healthcare system. And the other point we made in our op-ed is that instead of aiming for herd immunity, trying to stop the circulation of the virus, let's just focus on protecting the vulnerable. And if we can prevent healthcare overload, we may not need to vaccinate so many people as those of some some experts have suggested we do and this may get us out of jail sooner especially as numbers start to drop in the next month or two just due to the seasonality of coronavirus we know there's a seasonality component here which is driving all the outbreaks all over the world
0: yeah it's going to you're talking about it getting warmer and that's that's just that's what happened last year uh, earlier this year i'm saying last year already because i want this year to be gone um (laughs) The parameters needed to ease, and this is in your op-ed as well, the parameters needed to ease societal restrictions during the long vaccine deployment, it's going to have to be defined simultaneously or redefined, right?
1: Right, because we're obsessed with daily case counts. I've said this before. By the way, I still don't agree with imposing more lockdowns on places where case counts were low, like the Ottawa and Northern Ontario story, A discussion for another day. But what I'm saying is that many people made getting the whole population or a lot of the population a precondition to lifting restrictions. And then we started focusing on daily case counts. Daily case counts just represent transmission in the community. It's true that if you have tons of transmission in the community, that can spill over to vulnerable groups, but it's a very indirect measure of what the problem is. The problem is, are your healthcare systems overwhelmed where people who need a breathing machine are turned away as happened in Bergamo, Italy, for a few days or weeks? that's not happening here. We have a huge surge planning that's gone on. They've created extra capacity in Ontario. If people need to be transferred to another hospital, it's not a catastrophe. And so maybe we should now focus on, can we prevent the surge by going after the vulnerable population, the over 80s, and then people in long-term care? And by doing that alone, can we prevent the healthcare system from flooding? And once we've reached those endpoints, and if we see vaccine efficacy being as good as those original trials, or even 50 or 60%, and if numbers are coming down as well, it's time to start uh, liberating things and going back to life as we used to have it. Because if, there's, if there are more cases in the community, but if it doesn't translate into healthcare strain, we're going back to what the goal of flattening the curve was. It wasn't to stop every infection. We've slowly descended into a madness of aiming for zero aiming for an A-plus in virus suppression, but it comes with huge economic and sociological cost. And yeah. some of those costs are going to be permanent. They're not short-term. They're Mental deficit. health issues. And is also channeling the most vulnerable segments of society to still go to work and face the bloody virus while all of us sit back and order on DoorDash and Amazon. And those people are serving us by working for those various industries, working in kitchens that are producing mass mm-hmm. amounts of food, helping DoorDash, taxi drivers, delivery people, and they're not protected. So, in fact, we talked about this in the oped that maybe those people should be the next group to go and, and vaccinate. We should be looking at people who are forced to work in congregate settings as the next group.
0: Yeah, It's going to be a huge issue, isn't it, uh, who's going to be vaccinated and in, in what order. But I'd like to ask you this. Who do you think should be making the decisions about returning uh, incrementally, to, to regular life. Should it be public health officials? Should it be politicians? Should it be anyone who's been actively involved in, in creating the realities for lockdowns? Um, I, I have a funny feeling that we're going to be moving forward, or trying to, with one foot on the brake and one on the gas.
1: Yes, I've actually used that line before. It's funny you would say that, uh, and that is what's going on. I think the other problem is that there is a disagreement amongst infectious diseases specialists. You have two schools, You also even have two schools within members of society. I think some people look at this only through the COVID lens. Other look at this through total harm minimization, looking at other harms. I think some of this is politics as well. I think we saw a political schism between how Ford and Kenny were thinking about this and how uh, some of the other provinces, which were much more strict, were looking at it. Um, And, unfortunately, I think that's been blurred now. I think we all look the same. I think B.C. is the only place that's a little bit more functioning than anywhere else in Canada right now. So the problem is the politics are big. I don't think we can ignore them. And if you start saying we're going to have a citizens panel, if you populate the citizens panel with a whole bunch of people who are spooked by the typical mainstream media view, they're all going to start the same. I think we're seeing some cracks now now. Where we have Catherine McKenna speaking out about what's happening in Ottawa, even though she's a liberal, so in right. she's criticizing her own government. I think we're, and John Ibbotson wrote in the Globe and Mail, something somewhat critical, we're finally seeing a little bit of criticism that maybe this is a blunt instrument, the lockdown instrument, but I think it's going to take other countries also stepping off the boat. That's what it's going to take. I don't think it's, and I think tincture of time. I think there is going to be a natural dropping in terms of number of daily deaths and number of intensive care unit admissions and that's the hard number we've got to watch we've got to stop watching daily case counts it's true that daily deaths sometimes can jump up as they've happened in southern california right now but one day doesn't make a whole trend you have to look at seven day averages you have to look at the bigger picture and you also have to look at what usually would have happened at the end of the year during flu season how many people a day would have died if we didn't have covid don't look at numbers in isolation because every number can look spooky if you look at it in isolation and you don't put it in context. And there is a problem with putting numbers in context. But of course, sometimes people who are messaging have a bias. They actually want to continue lockdowns. They're lockdown enthusiasts. So they will sort of market the numbers in a certain way that serve that message. And I could market the numbers in a different way to serve my message that going more and more into lockdown isn't working. And I think in California, that's becoming very evident that despite everything they're doing, the numbers keep going up because there are certain people who still have to work. They cannot stay home. Dr.
0: Rao, let me ask you this. Back to vaccines. People who've been infected with the coronavirus, even unknowingly, do they have protection? Um, Do we know? And for how long? And how does this information answer the overall equation when it comes to the vaccines?
1: So we don't know how long protection lasts, but I would make a good assumption that those who have had the infection are indeed protected. We don't know who they are unless they had a test. So if somebody actually had a test, know that they actually, like a PCR test, and they know they were positive for that, they can assume they are largely protected. There are rare stories of reinfection, but for the most part, these are rare, and those people are not a priority for vaccination. It's not wrong that they get it. But i wouldn't go and hunt them down i don't think that's where you when you, you when you go fishing you go fishing where the fish are that's not where i would go when it comes to people who don't know whether they had it if they're in the high risk groups they must get it and as soon as possible the problem is we only have a trickle of it available relative to the people who need to be vaccinated and this is where we get to the managing of expectations with this vaccine it is a miracle from a scientific perspective but it's not like a Hollywood movie where everybody's going to have it in the next week before the movie ends. We're looking at many months to deploy the vaccine. We have to have a triaging and a prioritization system, which we are doing. And we have to have something that goes to remote communities as well, especially some of the First Nations communities or priorities that are isolated. And by the time you get it to those people, the next group of people to get it, the general public may be getting it well after things are on the downside, as things are getting better, as we get into the months where coronaviruses have a seasonality and things seem to drop off. We may end up with a fall wave next year, so I don't think people should ignore this vaccine, but I think we have to be realistic and manage expectations. And another big thing we have to talk about is, does this vaccine prevent people from getting the infection, not just getting the illness, but getting the infection? Because if people can't be protected from getting the infection, they get a subclinical form of the infection, they still could potentially spread the disease when they get the disease. And then you get into the question of whether it's really ethical to have immunity passports and say to people, only if you've had the vaccine can you travel. Only if you've had the vaccine can you go to the U.S. and come back without quarantining. I'm really worried we are on a slippery slope to using this vaccine as kind of a controller of liberties, and that's not a good thing to see, especially when we don't have all the information. So we should be very cautious about policies driven around vaccines as a precondition. I don't know yet that vaccinating healthcare workers in long-term care will prevent the introduction of the virus to long-term care without doing all of the other things that we are still doing, wearing the mask, the personal protective equipment, the screening, the keeping out of visitors. I don't know where we are on that yet. And I think we have to be careful in terms of managing expectations and watching the science before jumping to conclusions that just because we have a vaccine, we can solve that problem as well right away.
0: Okay, we have 30 seconds left. I have to ask you this. Could mutations of the virus throw everything
1: into the blender? Partially, but I don't think completely, but it's something to watch. And if it does drift, it could become like the flu vaccine where we have to give a new version of it every year. That does become a bummer, yes. But I don't know it yet.
0: A time uh, a time like we never expected to see in, in our lifetimes. It's, it really is like a movie, isn't it, in many ways? It is. Not the happy it's ending Dystopic.
1: Yet. It's a dystopic movie. <laughs> I suppose it is, yeah. You know?
0: Daryl Bricker joins us, as he has so many times in 2020, talking about the moods, the attitudes, the wishes, the expectations, and the doubts of Canadians. Uh, Daryl, I always learn something. Every time you're on the air with me, I learn something, and I just want to say it again. Your book next you want to know what's going to be happening in canada looking forward you should read the book folks it is outstanding thanks for making time for us on this final weekend uh, of uh,
3: 2020 always a pleasure thanks for having me on right
0: so let's start with uh, with with politics daryl because there's speculation about the spring federal election what is it what does your information suggest
3: well, you know, uh, the, the conventional wisdom out of Ottawa right now is that uh, the Prime Minister would be well-advised to have a, a federal election sometime in the spring, and who knows, that might be what happens. Uh, but looking at the numbers right now, and poll we released for Global News this week, they've only got a three-point lead, um, and the extent that they've built up a little bit of a lead since the last election is really only in the places where they were already winning. So um, I don't see how a majority... Government comes out of what we're looking at at the moment. And also as we move into the springtime, uh, the issue of vaccines, and you mentioned that at the, in the introduction, is going to become more and more of an, an issue, uh, for Canadians. And it's not going to be what a lot of conventional wisdom is right now, which is trying to convince Canadians to get vaccinated. The problem is going to be having enough vaccine for the Canadians, for Canadians who already want to be vaccinated. And the, uh, the fact that the, uh, the, um, uh, access to vaccines is going to be back-end loaded. So looking more into the end of the summer next year or or into the fall is probably going to be a, a pretty um, a, pr- a pretty rude waking, awakening for Canadians in terms of uh, how we're going to be able to get our lives back to what uh, what we want them to be.
0: Sure, and particularly if in the United States, uh, their numbers are massive, their vaccination numbers have become massive. And I've heard some people say that the Americans are expecting to vaccinate 100 million people by the end of April.
3: Well, that's because the president has said that. <laughs> so Joe Biden has, has announced uh, that uh, you know he's going to uh, uh, vaccinate a hundred million people in a hundred days. I mean that's a third of the American population. A third of the Canadian population would be about close to ten million people, uh, and we're not even going to be close to that. In fact, the uh, the federal government is saying by uh, maybe the, the end of March that we're going to have three million. Well, based on our calculations right now, uh, and based on the surveys that we're doing, uh, we know that the demand is somewhere between about 7 and 8 million right now. That's that's 7 or 8 million people that if you turn on the lights and announce that you could go there and get a vaccination, would go today or tomorrow.
0: Yeah, that's a big number. And it would be a very influential number in any federal election. And if uh, the Liberals only have a three-point lead, now, at the end of 2020, that's not safe territory at all. I'm surprised that it's only 3%, actually.
3: Yeah, and, and you know... It, Depending on the poll, uh, we've had uh, uh, the Liberals with a slight lead for most of most of the year. In fact, uh, I referred to in an article this week with Global as you know the Blur's Day of Politics. I mean, every month we go out, we do surveys with uh, with Canadians and ask them how they're going to vote, and fluctuating within a couple of points, it's uh, it's usually maybe three, five, six percent ahead for the Liberals, and that's it. Not enough to to win a majority government.
0: How badly do we want an election, Darrell?
3: We don't. The only people who seem to want an election right now are actually the people who are voting for the, uh, for the opposition parties, not the governing party. So, you know, I know the conventional wisdom out of Ottawa um, is that uh, now would be a good time to go for the prime minister. But the truth is, the numbers just don't really seem to be there, so they're going to have to improve. And if the outcome of all of this is going to be just to get another minority government, maybe even weaker than the one that he has right now, what would be the, the reason for doing that? Now, the good point for the prime minister is he has all the cards. He has all the cards right now. So even if he doesn't decide to have an election, he knows that the opposition parties are pretty much prepared to agree to just about everything, anything that he wants to do in terms of how he wants to govern the country. So he's in a really strong position going into the, uh, into the, the end of the winter period here and into the spring.
0: I don't remember a minority government having that many cards. Actually, uh, in, in certainly not in recent history. When we look at um, what this pandemic has done to Canadians, how it's changed us, you've uh, you've looked at that as well, and uh, and you've also uh, analyzed what is going to turn out to be permanent change and what really is just transitory. Could you talk to us about that?
3: Yeah, there's a lot of chatter right now about and a lot of theories, I should put it put it that way, chasing too few data points. So there's this, you know, big expectation that the you know cities are gonna decline as a result of this. I don't know if that's the case. Uh that, you know, rural real estate is going to accelerate. There's really no signs of that happening right now. Most of the real estate prices are that are accelerating are still within commuting distance of, say, for example, the city of Toronto um uh, that we're all going to be permanently working from home well 500,000 Canadian men list their occupation as truck driver uh so the likelihood that they're going to be working from home anytime soon is uh, is not very likely so we have a lot of these impressions about you know particularly what I would say people who work in fairly elite occupations what their life is like through this pandemic and it, and they equate that to how everybody else is living and that's just not an accurate representation. So there's a lot of people who are really, really suffering as we go through this uh, um, uh, through this pandemic with a lot of uncertainty about what their future is going to be. And they're not necessarily worried about the quality of their Wi-Fi connection as their biggest issue in life.
0: Yeah. Uh, just looking again at that vaccine story, um, the issue uh, won't be getting those who say they don't want to or may not participate. The issue will be getting the people getting the vaccine to the millions of people who want it who as you said seven or eight million saying if i can have it right now i'm i'm going to go and get it and and if it's not available and if the rollout is, is as slow as it looks like it's going to be while the united states accelerates past us that is really politically tricky territory for mr trudeau and uh, to the advantage of mr o'toole and the
3: opposition parties the other opposition parties Absolutely. I mean, if there is a weakness that this government has, it's its ability to actually deliver on what it commits to. Now, it had a really good run through the uh, the early stages of the uh, of the pandemic, when it you know moved very very quickly in terms of getting income support, which people uh, really are um, quite uh, impressed by the the fact that the government was able to do that. But this next part, which is about the delivery of uh, vaccines. And giving access to people where there's a lot of demand is going to really put uh, the test on um, the, again, on the government's ability to deliver quickly. And given that the availability of vaccines, based on the government's own estimates, is very much back-end loaded, uh, there's a, a, a real opportunity here for serious frustration between now and the summertime.
4: This has been
0: such a weird year for sports, and what really signifies to me, what underscores this to me, is the fact that the Masters was not played in April to herald springtime and the change in the weather. It snuck in the back door in November. That just, to me, just so typifies what 2020 was all about with COVID, and it changed our life. And so many people have sports, professional sports, college sports, as an integral part of their scheduling. It's all good for our mental health. And they went, well, it's all changed. Neil Lumsden, three gray cups playing for the Edmonton Football Club and for the general manager for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, uh, football, Canadian Football Hall of Fame inductee, sports development advisor, keynote speaker. He's really good. Leadership and team builder. And go to you can contact Neil at neillockercitiesports at gmail.com. neillockercitiesports at gmail.com. Why were you we laughing?
4: Uh, I, I was laughing because oftentimes that's all you can do. <laughs> um, or you can listen to, I mean I, or listen, can listen, I, mean, to I listen to your show regularly and I I listen to people's comments and when we talk about what what this year has has presented to us, I mean, you know, many coaches would tell you, many uh, motivational speakers would tell you that this is an opportunity and the right, for the most part, to learn to deal with tough times, you know, you know, all sorts of cliches out there, it? and I agree with a lot of that, but boy, there's a lot that has happened this year that everyone will be more than happy to leave behind.
0: Oh, absolutely, and uh, I mean, you and I sat down for coffee coffee a couple of times over the last months, and we, we had a couple of hours of conversation yeah. about life and about sports, and uh, so sort of the common denominator for us is sports, except you were a lot better than me at everything, but It's just God's gift to you.
2: Well,
4: we'll 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 keep working on some other things. We'll find something (laughs) that we can. You're awfully kind, but thank you, Uh, thank you.
0: (laughs) So, so Neil, what's your perception? What's your view of what happened? What's going on in the world of sport? You know, we have this abbreviated NHL season starting. Who knows who's playing what and who and where? And COVID stops games and postpones it. How's this all impacting on you? And how do you view it all?
4: Well, you know, that's a great question, and and oftentimes when we talk, when we have a coffee and and when I listen to you on the radio, it it makes me think about other things. It makes me think about being a little bit more succinct in my thoughts, in what certain things mean and how it impacts all, all of us. And what I came up with today is two words, transition anxiety. And what I mean by that is when I, and all the people I know out there, and this is certainly a lot to do with sport but young people young guys and gals um universe high school to university to pro there everyone is in a state of transition in their careers when you're younger you're obviously preparing to in high school you're getting ready to go to college university and get to that next level and whether you're in sport or you're just going on to the next level um academically and then those that are lucky enough to go on to a let's see, a a PhD or MBA and and in sport, go to university and then go to pro, Uh, those sorts of things. And those people that are in pro that really look at their career in in hunks of three, you, you get into your career, if it's successful, you get to the middle part of it, you know what's going on, and then you get in the last part and you know you've got better years behind you than more behind you than you do in front of you. And all that creates anxiety in different times that we all deal with. But now you put everyone in this scenario, and there's a there's a period of lost time that we're never going to get back, and it's more than a year. So the anxiety, I think, ramps up in everyone's head quite quietly. I mean, it is for me, and some people, everyone deals with it differently, but it's, it's now, especially for younger people, how am I going to handle this? How, how am I going to deal with this transition now? Last year, I was in shape. I was ready for it. This year, I've either had to study from home, or a, and I can't work out. So, what is that going to mean for my next step? I was ready to go, and now I'm not. And I, I think dealing with that and having you know a solid core group around you, we have friends and coaches, and obviously parents, and all that to people these to say it, you know, it is a transition, yes, but don't be as anxious because the good news about this is unlike coming back from a serious injury where everyone else was continued on it and you wonder whether you can be what you used to be everyone is in the same boat everyone is dealing for the most part with the same concern not that that makes people feel any better but at least maybe levels the playing field a little bit when it comes to amateur sport
0: yeah i'm just thinking as you were speaking that uh emotional fortitude if i can coin something here will be uh, significantly important uh, maybe more so than ever if you have the athletic ability that's one thing but if you can also support yourself emotionally and not let this get you too far down and realize that you will be on the field again or on the ice or on the court and you will have your opportunity the so having the emotional strength to deal with what's going on now will be massively important
4: without question and you know as the cliche is uh, but i believe it's true if you When you prepare yourself and get through this, really at the end of the when this is all said and done and people are back to whatever that normal is going to be, they will be better. There is no question in some way, shape, or form, they will be better suited to carry on no matter what they do. If they've looked and approached this in in the way my dad taught me and many coaches uh, reflected uh, on when they talked about success and how do you handle yourself and how do you deal with problems? And um, I yeah, I'd like to think, you know, for the most part, it's tough as it is still. I mean, I, you know, I look at uh, the CFL right now and, and the things that they're going to have to deal with on the business front as it pertains to not only their business operations, but their football side. Uh, things that they never had to do before that no matter what they do, they because of a season, you can't prepare like you did Previously, whether it's numbers, uh, one year contracts that are expiring, all these sorts of things. Um, again, at the end of the day, if they're good, they'll be better as a result of this. It's just too bad we all had to do it. But you know what? We have no choice.
0: We don't have any choice. But how no. does this change now? How does this change the equation for professional sport? If we're talking about you know, major professional sport, which is constantly in front of you, well, on television, or you have the opportunity to watch it on other digital platforms, or you can go to the games yourself. Uh, that's all been suspended. It's all been changed. It's all been just suddenly it changes because somebody has tested positive for COVID. Um, again, the Masters rolling in in November instead of April. Yeah. Is the is the world of professional sport going to recover fully from this, or is this going to have um, aftershocks for some period of time?
4: Well, I think it's a little bit, you know, as much as I don't like to compare, I'm going to compare it to the flu. Everyone everyone has had the flu and everyone gets it a little bit differently. Some people get sicker than others. Some people, you know, it's not as bad. And, and when you look at professional sport now, I think that's what everyone's dealing with. As an example, the CFL's issues are not the same as the NFL's or Major League Soccer or the NHL or baseball. Everyone has their own issues to deal with uh, you know it's the old expression is you want to find out what's really going on follow the money well if you if you do that and look at revenue points and what their expenses are and it's different in every league And how do you how do you maximize how have you been able to maximize your revenue during this and then how do you get to your point where you say okay we got through it now it's going to get better uh, we, we know we've got this revenue from television but we, now we got to get our gate back, and we got to get our merchandising, and we've got to create a – you know, people are dying to get back into stadiums and, and watch their teams, and as much as anything, sit beside somebody else, me yeah. sitting beside you at, yeah. at a Tiger-Cat game and, and, you know, talking about the game and, and, and feeling the energy that football and sport give you. That people are just dying to, to get back to that. I'm one of yes. them from yeah, a coaching absolutely. perspective. I can't wait. Get back and coach in high school; those sorts of things. Yeah, um, and then it's then it's how do you go from there without trying to, you know, it's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. And people that you can't come back into it and say, "Oh, we got to do all this." No, no, it's all about planning and making sure that you create the best situation for young athletes, whether it's student athletes or just students, so they can excel. That's our job.
0: My friend, you were uh, not only a great athlete, you were a thinking athlete, and you were still. Uh, A great leader and uh, pragmatic, uh, approaching life. And I think pragmatism is what we all need a lot more of, particularly this time. Great talking to you, uh, Mr. Lumsden. And uh, just give me a break next
4: time, okay? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's no chance on that.
0: Christopher Voss, former FBI agent, lead crisis negotiator for the New York City FBI Bureau also the former lead FBI international kidnapping negotiator, founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group Limited, also author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as Though Your Life Depended on It. Uh, Chris has been a guest on this program over the years. And, Chris, thank you very much. I gave you a very short notice. I appreciate you uh, agreeing to talk to me.
5: Yeah, my pleasure, Roy. I've always enjoyed our conversation, so I'm happy to be back on.
0: Thank you. What does your instinct and, uh, and years of investigation suggest to you about possible scenarios and reasons for the this, this bombing?
5: Yeah, well, a possibility right now, and you want to be careful you don't narrow yourself down to just one. But, you know, a significant possibility that jumps out to me now is um, I think it's very possible the remains belong to the bomber. Um, nothing is a coincidence. The fact that it was close to the AT&T building, um, that's not a coincidence. That's a selected location. Whoever did the bombing made it a point to not hurt innocent people. You know, they, they, they picked a location. There would not be very many people around. They picked a time of day. There would not be very many people around. Just in case they put a warning on it, this thing is getting ready to explode. And I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, the sound of gunshots was probably part of the previous warning because they know the police are going to come if they hear gunshots. You know, somebody's going to call the police. Likely the police will respond immediately. The recording saying this thing is getting ready to explode. It's a warning to get all innocent bystanders away. So clearly trying to make sure they don't hurt anybody else. But make a make a statement, make a point. Damage clearly damage some property. They have to know that there's going to be evidence that's going to lead to the ownership of the RV, whether it was rented or whether it was owned. Very quickly, so the you know the 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 origin of the RV is going to come out really fast, which is clear by the way law enforcement locally is running this down. They've got a person of interest. They got leads. People are going to call in and say, so-and-so has been acting suspiciously. So-and-so has talked about this. They're going to identify the bomber quickly. The bomber's probably going to know this. If their human remains, the chances of it being an innocent bystander, while possible, are less likely. I think this, and to me, this, unfortunately... A distinct possibility is that someone that was so distraught that they 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 wanted to kill themselves. I mean, that's what that's that's what I'm looking at first, not the only thing, but as of the facts and circumstances as I know them, as to being reported in the news, that's what it looks like to me.
0: Yeah, there was of there were some uh, initial attempts to uh, compare this to Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, but not not the case, huh?
5: Well, McVeigh. Um, didn't kill himself. No, he didn't. Him. You know, it wasn't suicidal. He meant, he meant to take innocent lives. He meant to. Um, clearly, this bomber took precautions to try to keep anybody else from getting hurt. It would have been easy to put it in a, in a busy building that there were a lot of people around to make a point. Clearly selected to minimize the loss of innocent life. Including a warning for people to get away, giving police enough time to get people away. So, no, it's uh, it's it's not a good comparison.
0: What about the issue of the the amount of explosive used and uh, where those explosives may have been obtained?
5: Well, uh, two different issues: the amount and where they are obtained. Um, the type of explosives, a large amount of explosives that move at a slower speed, for, for lack of a better term. they You know, they look at uh, explosives fall into two broad categories, slow speed and high speed. Slow speed stuff is less volatile, less likely to go off by accident, easier to obtain, um, not real complicated. You can put a lot of it together, you know, ANFO, for lack of a better term, which to some degree was what, you know, McVeigh used slower speed, explosion uh, explosive device because it's easier to transport it's less likely to go off by accident relatively easy to obtain probably a large amount of slow-moving explosive intent to do a lot of property damage and and simultaneously trying to avoid the loss of innocent life which is is crazy it seems on the one hand uh, very destructive very bad or on the other hand Someone altruistic, trying not to hurt anybody that's innocent. So, Which also makes me more suspicious of the lo, uh, the selection of the location. A fair amount being made right now, for the moment, but that was close to a, an AT&T facility. So they're going to be looking at that to either rule it in or rule it out. Did the person have, uh, has, he, has he got a grudge match with technology? Has he, has he got a beef with AT&T? Clearly an angry act. What's the source of the anger, and what, where, who does the bomber blame it on? Uh,
0: one final question for you, Chris, and again, thank you for taking the time. Uh, what kind of police and FBI resources are being, being used now? How extensive?
5: You know, and it's not just an issue of extensive, but coordination. Um, and it is extremely extensive right now. You know, the news reports have got uh, the FBI involved, they've got the local uh, state and local law enforcement probably different several federal agencies uh ATF is going to be there because of their expertise in explosives likely the coordination here is extensive and effective right now um, from the statements that i've read in the in the media of the FBI spokespeople the person in charge of the FBI office their um, being very careful in their statements to not overshadow the contributions that are being made by the uh, the other agencies. Okay. No one single agency has enough bomb tax available to process this scene. Right. It's going to require a team effort of all the agencies to get this done quickly.